0: Well, Hello, everyone. It is good to be with you. Happy belated Thanksgiving. You're all looking very happy and, and full, which is good this Sunday anyway. And no offense intended, of course, I hope you lived up to the statistics I hear uh, are part of what it means to be a truly thankful American. Apparently, uh, on average, the thankful American eats about 4,000 calories in one Thanksgiving meal. That's a lot. And get this, it does so within 11 minutes on average. (laughs) But I've always thought you Texans were above average. So I hope you lived up to to that and did Texas proud. I surely tried my best to, to fit in. But our feasting isn't over. We turn to the Word of God for a few more thousand spiritual calories today, and so turn to the book of Acts, chapter 21, Acts 21, uh, page 930 in a, in a blue Bible. If you haven't got a copy of the Scriptures, there should be one around you there. Turn to page 930. Now, we're going to be skipping all over the place today in, in that chapter of, of the Scriptures, just just warning you, letting you know, stretch if you, if you need to. But the book of Acts is, is a story. It's a historical story. I mean, all that stuff happened. It's the story of the beginnings of the church, which means it's, it's our story. It's your story. If, if Christ is your King, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is your story, Familiarize yourself with it. There's there's lots of stories within it that we've explored all year stories of of people like us, stories of people who are not like us, stories of of a society like our society in opposition to God, and, and stories of people inside those societies receiving the gospel, receiving the forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ. This is is your story. This is my story. This is a great story that God can't and won't be stopped. It's a story that's still unfolding. It's beautiful. The stories in there, of course, are not uh, recorded simply to to help you learn a little bit about history. They're not not there to give us something to talk to the kids about at bedtime or or on Sundays. They're, They're there to help you to guide you tomorrow. When you go out into a world that, that, that doesn't know Christ or that rejects Christ, that stands against everything that you stand for, they're here to help you. These stories are there to, to instruct you. Stories do that. Stories of the lives of other people can pass on a lot of wisdom. Recently, I've been reading a book on the American Civil War and I've been struck by, by all the lessons that can be learned from people who who lived in that era. One that stood out to me uh, was about a guy called Edward Baker. Edward Baker became a colonel in the Union Army, but he he didn't earn his rank. He, He just got it because he was a senator. He was a politician, and he realized that if he had ambitions to climb in the political arena up to the presidency, then a little bit of battlefield action in which he was the hero would would do him well. And so he became a colonel, uh, and he headed off to this particular battle, uh, and he he put a massive white feather in his cap to make sure that when the story was told and when the press recorded the incidents of, of heroism that day, that he would stand out sort of his branding. And so off he went to fight in this battle, and as it unfolded, at every turn, he ignored every single command that his superiors sent to him. See, they didn't know his script. He was going to be president one day. In fact, he was Abraham Lincoln's, one of his best pals, probably his next pick for VP to pave the way toward his presidential uh, years, administration as well. And his superiors were getting in the way of that, so they were to be ignored. And he did. At every turn, he disobeyed instructions. And long story short, uh, Colonel Baker led 900 men to their deaths. He himself uh, was picked out by a sniper because of that big, massive white feather in his hat. Made him easy pickings. He was a fool. And his story warns me. It warned me this week, do not ignore good advice. Follow the instructions of of those who know more. And so, these stories in the book of Acts and in Acts 21 are no better than you. They know better than me, and they're there by God to help us, to instruct us, to guide us, so that we live a, 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 a more faithful and fulfilling life for Jesus Christ. In Acts 21, we watch and we learn, once again, from the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul's making his way to Jerusalem, and there's a whole bunch of things going on there that I'm not going to get into, but I've just singled out three areas of his life that I think model for you how you could embrace your calling for the Lord Jesus Christ this week and on into this season that's before us. And I hope you get more out of it than my youngest did recently at a church. We, as a family, went to visit another church with some friends, and after it, we were chatting and over lunch discussing what we heard. And I asked him what he learned, and he said, "Oh, the Sunday school today was brilliant, Dad. We played musical hula hoops, and I won." I was thinking, "Wow, that's 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 great," but I sure hope people get more than musical hula hoops when they come and hear the Word of God opened up. So, three reminders, three experiences from Paul for you today. And the first is this, it concerns family. It concerns your true family. It concerns us that the thankful people, thankful Christians embrace the local church as God's gift to them. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have received His forgiveness by faith, if He is King of your life, then one of the blessings that He has bestowed upon you is not just that you become His child, it's that you become a part of His family. You get us, all of us. You're not an only child. You've got a new family. Let me, let me show you a little bit of the, the beauty of that family life that emerges here in, in this chapter. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. It says this, and when we—and that's that's we believe Luke referring to Luke and Paul as they're traveling—when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, Leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, now today all of those spots are holiday destinations, so that's not a a bad move by Luke and Paul sort of making their way to Jerusalem. It's kind of a nice little journey. But look what it continues to say, and and having sought out the disciples at Tyre, we stayed there for seven days. They went and they found a local church here. And through the Spirit, they, that's the church, were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our day, days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, this entire little church there, entire, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. It's, it's beautiful. Amidst all that itinerary, we meet a, a, a little church in the city of Tyre. And there's, there's a lot of attention devoted to them in, in this itinerary. And we speak, it speaks of Christian fellowship. It speaks of of love and a mutual affection that they all had for one another and for Paul and his companions as they were heading to Jerusalem. I'd love to know more about the believers in Tyre. One day we will. I think it's the sort of church that I'd love to be a part of if I was to to live back then. If you glance up at verse one, uh, we read that, that they departed from them. And so the question is, who's them and, and, and where's there and, and if you go back to Acts chapter 20, at the very end of that chapter, we read this, Acts 20 verse 36, and, and when he, that's Paul, had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. The them is the church at Ephesus, who have, some of them have met with him at, the, at, at a beach nearby. We talked about that a little bit last week. There was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul, and they kissed him, being sorrowful, that most, most of all because of the words that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. They accompanied him to the ship. It's another little incident of a church at a beach, together on their knees in prayer, filled with love and fellowship and affection. Again, I can't wait to meet this lot. That's the sort of church that I'd want to be a part of if I lived in that community back then. Look at verse seven in chapter 21. This is an interesting little group. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So they find these Christians, and I mean, maybe it's my weird sense of humor, but I kind of giggle at this. It's like, like Paul says to Luke, okay, these, this lot are a little strange. Let's get back on the ship and, and make her get out of here. But I doubt they did that, but, but it's interesting that there is another little group there. And they're believers. God's people are scattered everywhere. And Paul and companions make sure they meet with them. After a day, the the, the cruise ship, as it were, is is heading back out, and so Paul and his companions head on with it. Look at verse 8 of chapter 21. On the next day, we departed and we came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist. He was one of the seven, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, he's one of the original deacons in the church in Jerusalem, and he's, he's ministered in different parts of the world, including Samaria, and now he's settled in this port city of Caesarea. So they stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who, who prophesied. There was a little church there as well. Now skip down to verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Now, we'll get in a little second to what was going on there. All I want you to see at this point is once again the deep love and affection, affection that these people have for one another. They see each other as, as family in Christ, and, and they love one another, and, and when one hurts, they all hurt, and when one laughs, they all laugh. So, they embrace Paul, and then they send him on his way, and again, if, if I lived back then, that's the sort of church that I'd want to be a part of. That's a church that understands the gospel, and that lives out the gospel among one another and then out into the world. And then it continues. Go down to verse 15 in chapter 21. Cruise is over, now they're heading inland. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So on the way, between Caesarea and Jerusalem, there's another little house church that hosts them and they stay at. When we'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. The church in Jerusalem, whom we're a little bit more familiar with, expresses their joy and their gratitude and their gladness at the the arrival of their friends, including Paul and his reports of what he's been doing throughout that world at that time. What stands out is this joy and this excitement about the presence of a family member who's come back home. We love you. We missed you. Where have you been? We're glad you're here once again. It, it's, it's beautiful. Okay, so what's all the fuss about here, Murphy? This is getting a little bit close to the musical hula hoops in terms of re- relevance. Uh, here's, what, here's what I want you to understand, that Paul sought out And Paul embraced each local church that he stopped off at. And they embraced him. See, they understood the truth of the scriptures, the the reality, not the metaphor, that they are a family in Christ. The brothers and sisters. They're a community of God's people that do life together. They pray together, they hope together, they laugh together, they weep together, they worry together, they serve together, and they wait for the kingdom of God to come together. It's natural for them. One of my fondest and probably most formative memories growing up as a child in Spain was the local church that I was a part of first 14, 15 years of my life, I grew up in a little community of believers in a massive sea of people in Spain who looked on us with great suspicion. We were those Protestants in a Roman Catholic country. They had no time for us, and we felt that, but we had one another and it formed my life. I've never experienced such Christian fellowship as I did in that little handful of Spanish believers growing up all those years ago. We did beach church like the guys in Tyre and Caesarea, it was wonderful. We did mountain church. We went on excursions together to the mountains. We did youth camps. We did VBS. We just did everything together. We we had a rotation where everybody was in a group, and every week, one group was assigned to clean the entire church. And so when it was your turn, you showed up on a Friday afternoon and cleaned the church, and guess what happens? All the other groups showed up too, not to clean, but just to be together. It took us 15 years to build that church. It's not a big church. But for big seasons of those 15 years, only one guy in the church had a job. And so you can imagine what it was like at offering time as the offering plate's been passed around that fellowship. But what was the rush? It could have taken 20 years. It could have taken 25 years. We were together. This was our community. We were the family of God, and we had a role in the world, and and it formed me. It made me want to be a part of that community. It made me want to grow up, become a leader in that community or in the church of God, because there's no better community on the planet than the community of God's people, the church. The local church is God's hope for society, and, and you're a part of it. God wants you here more than just once a week to warm a chair and to throw a few dollars into a plate as it goes by or just when you're in the mood for it or I don't know, you can't get to the lake. God God wants you to be with his people, his family. And here's the thing, you need to be with his people too because God's greatest work in your life is gonna be mediated through those around you. Yeah, those people sitting around you right now here me encroaching in your space. They're God's gift to you. And God has gifted them and God has gifted you for the other's edification. And when you're absent, somebody is malnourished or somebody is not being edified. Church family life can be the greatest blessing of God on your life, but you have to embrace it. And thankful people embrace local church life. Go and live overseas for a season, and you'll come back grateful for this family of God. So, how do we do that? It's not in your sermon notes. Two things I want you to jot down in that little space there. Number one is this. See us as family. It's as simple as that. It's a mindset shift. Begin to see us as family, view us as family, not as a place for an event. It is a place, a church is a place that hosts events, but that's not the church. The church is a people. It's a people of God. It's a family of God that happens to meet in a place for a series of events. So begin to switch your mindset to seeing the church as your family. It's not just a gathering of people with similar interests for an event on a Sunday, you know, Saturday night is a, at the movies is a gathering of people with similar interests for an event. And they're not a family, but we are. We're the family of God, and we need you, and I need you, and you need me. And if you want to reach the 800,000 800, people in this area that don't know Jesus Christ as king, then don't just invite them to an event in a place. Invite them into a family. They are hopeless. They are lonely. They want to belong, and they want to be invited into a family that loves them. So come, come invite them here and tell them, yeah, come and meet, come meet some of my weird family. Yeah, they're a little strange, but I love them. They're my people. The second thing I'd like you to write in there is this. Not just see us as a family mindset shift, but participate in the family. Participate in family life. It's, it's, I have a few teenagers at home now, and I kid you not, participate in family life is the title of my most common sermon these days at home. Participate in family life. Showing up for food or, or to get my credit card or, or to hurl a few grunts at me uh, from behind a screen is not participating in family life. Participating in family life means that you're meaningfully present, right? That you're engaging unless you are a perpetual spiritual teenager. Then I can understand that you don't want to participate in family life, but that's not God's will for your life. God's will for your life is that you see us as family and then you participate in what this family life is all about, both in here and in the world. So, so Paul models for us on that little trip across eastern Mediterranean Sea, that that there's a family life that is characteristic of the people of God, and that has to remain today. The second thing he models for us is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Thankful people, thankful believers embrace unfair opposition from the culture and from even inside the church. You join the family of God, and and you've got to expect unfair treatment. Pretty much around every corner. And from time to time, even sadly, in here, the family of God can be a little bit dysfunctional. We are. But what Acts 21 is not modeling is that the Christian life is like a Royal Caribbean cruise around the Eastern Mediterranean where everything's nice and you spend time at the beach. Even though that's happening, that's not what it's modeling. What it's modeling is, yes, we're a family, but we're a family inside of a hostile environment. And Sometimes we bring it in and things aren't good. And like we were reminded just like last week, persecution is alive and well. Not just away the over there, but also here. And persecution really is the story of the church. It's as old as, as the church has been around. Look at Acts 21, verse 30. Paul has now entered into the temple in Jerusalem, and, and the society around him doesn't want him. Look what it says there. Then all the city, the entire city, was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, that's the Roman leaders there, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. The entire city does not want Paul. They don't want his gospel. They don't want his message of Jesus Christ as king. And they're going to do something about it, they're going to remove him. They're going to kill him. Uh, Paul's experiences is this quite, quite a lot, but in this case, he wasn't even preaching. The guy was just kind of going into church, as it were, and there was a target on his back, which again isn't unlike what will happen these days uh, pretty soon. But opposition didn't just come from out there. It followed him inside the church as well. Turn to verse 20. Go back to verse 20 in Acts 21. There's some believers inside the church who are sharpening their knives, as it were, with the arrival of Paul. Verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified God. That's the leaders of the church hearing Paul's report They glorified the Lord. And then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. There's lots of believers in our churches who have come from the Jewish faith. And they're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. So, Paul arrives. They're glad to see him, but he's warned that there's some in the church that don't like what he's preaching, and and they're struggling really to understand the implications of the gospel in the Christian life. That's what's going on there. And so they asked Paul, would you do some activities at the temple, which is why he ends up there being threatened to be killed? Would you do some activities there that would pacify them, show them that you're not against our traditions? And Paul does. Now Paul rarely bends. Paul's, you know, I'm not gonna bend at all, but, but he makes a judgment call here and he, he picks his battles, and and for, for him, this this particular instance is a case of a mature believer accommodating to immature believers in the hopes that these spiritual teenagers will in time grow up. But that's not today. And so he accommodates to that and and ultimately goes on into the temple. All I want you to understand is that opposition that Paul faced was not just out there, it was in here. There are people inside the family of God who have yet to mature in Christ. Unfortunately, it will happen in here. It's certainly gonna happen out there. In fact, just this week I was talking to a friend of mine and he said he was at Costco's and he was rummaging through some coats there because it was a local charity that had put out a call for coats for, you know, for people who needed a, a jacket to keep warm. And as he was doing that, he was sort of bumping with the guy beside him and they got talking. And the guy beside him had an accent. And so he said to him, Hey, where are you from? And the guy said, I'm from Palestine. So my friend was taken back. He said, Oh, from Palestine. Oh my goodness. What do you think about what's going on there? And I kid you not, this guy publicly and loudly and fragrantly says, I think it's good we should kill all the Jews. That's what he said. Right, right, right here in our city there's so much hatred out there. There's so much evil out there that is flagrant and open that it will come for you and me if we claim that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Paul faced it. He faced it outside the church. He faced it inside the church. You're going to face it this week part of the Christian life. So how do I embrace unfair opposition? Again, two little things I want you to scribble down in your sermon notes. The first one, again, this is not rocket science, it's this expect it. Expect it as the new norm. Now, I'm not saying you accept it as right, but I I do mean that you expect it as a reality that's not going away. You are going to be opposed if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe me, join me this summer and we'll head to Europe and you'll see what's going on there. A place that once thrived with the gospel that is currently opposed. Again, it's a mindset shift. doesn't mean you have to be silent. Absolutely not. We will not be silent, but we should expect uh, opposition. And secondly, of course, pick your battles. This is more related to those oppositions that might come your way inside the church. Pick your battles. Not everything's worth a fight. There are some spiritual teenagers around that just need time discipled in Jesus, and so just bite your lip and pick your battle. I fail at this miserably all the time. A few months ago, again, I was visiting a church Uh, and my son was with me. He's at 14 years old, and we're going in, and we go past this refreshments area, and then we go into the sanctuary, and, you know, it's praise time, and I look across at him, and he's sipping on a massive white cup like he's in the movies, and my blood starts to simmer. I'm like, we're all praising Jesus here, and you're just sitting there as if you're, you know, on Saturday night at the movies, And so I say nothing, but I have a conversation with him later. And I give him, you know, some good preaching. I tell him, you know what, next time is he going to bring the popcorn? You know, did he really, was he going to dehydrate in that one hour? And, and, you know, if he turns to Exodus 3, Moses took his sandals off when he was in the presence of God. And if he turns to Isaiah 6, you know, Isaiah falls flat on his face in the presence of a holy God. I mean, I was waxing eloquent. I think there is a conversation that needs to be had about evangelicals' understanding or loss of the awe of God, but not with a 14-year-old who's a good guy, who loves Jesus, who happened to be thirsty walking past a refreshment stand at church like we have here and picked up a little cup to drink, projected all of that onto him, and I was wrong. I was the spiritual immature teenager in that instance. So pick your battles, be patient. Uh, So, embrace the family. Embrace opposition, and lastly, thirdly, and very, very quickly, uh, obedience. Thankful people embrace God's will, believing that He knows what He is doing. God knows what He's doing. Look at verse 4 of chapter 21. And, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. This is entire. Remember, they stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So this church is telling Paul, it's not going to be good for you up there. Don't go. Look at verse 10 in the same chapter, Caesarea, different city. While we were staying, for many days a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, and this is really good preaching, thus says the, Lo- the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This is like dramatic preaching with props and all involved. When we heard this, We and the people there urged him, that's Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Remember we read this? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul just obediently submitted to God's will for his life. He embraced that knowing that God knows Better not. He did that in Ephesus in chapter 20. We're not going to go there. But, but if you go to Acts 9, at the very beginning of Paul's ministry, on his road to Damascus experience, where he meets Jesus for the first time, he was told up front, this is going to be your experience. Look what it says there. But the Lord said to him, to, to Paul, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew the Christian life was going to involve difficulty. And his responsibility was simply to obey. Lastly, verse 14 in Acts chapter 21 a beautiful little phrase there, back at the church of Caesarea. And since he would not be persuaded, that's Paul would not be persuaded not to go to Jerusalem, here's what the people said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. God used the church to tell Paul that things were going to get nasty in Jerusalem. And they naturally wanted to dissuade him from going because they love him. But Paul also knew that the Spirit of God was leading him to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and ultimately before kings, which is what happens. He, he knew that it wasn't going to be nice, but, but he submitted himself to God's will for his life, even though he didn't understand why. My, one of my ministry heroes is a lady called Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary in the 1890s to the 1950s, in India. She went as a young lady and she never came back home. And home was Northern Ireland. And and it's a a fascinating story. She she ends up rescuing uh, little girls from sexual trafficking in the Hindu temples. And one of the the, the favorite stories I, I read about her was when she was a little girl. When she was a little girl, her number one prayer every night was, Lord, would you give me blue eyes? I want blue eyes. Mom has blue eyes. Blue's my favorite color. You like blue. You made the sky blue. Give me blue eyes. And God continually said, no, no, no. And, and, and she thought, well, how mean is that? And, and why wouldn't he do that? But she kept praying and he kept saying no. Two decades later, the only reason why she was able to rescue so many children, so many little girls from, from those prostitute temples was because she could put on Indian attire, stain her skin brown with coffee and walk right on by because the only thing they could see was the brown, the big brown eyes. Blue eyes would have been a giveaway and she wouldn't have rescued one. I love that because God ultimately gave her the why many decades later, but that's his prerogative. Thankful people just embrace his will. How do we do that? Well, ultimately, one word for you to write there in that little blank, submit. It's a dirty word out there. It's it's a very Christian word in the family of God and in the Scriptures, submit. It's cast our way beautifully in that little phrase from Caesarea. Let the will of the Lord be done. When you don't understand, you don't moan and complain and throw a spiritual teenage tantrum You say, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. He's the God of the galaxies. He knows what he's doing. Friends, our time is gone, so let me just uh, wrap it up. Uh, Hopefully you got more than... (laughs) musical hula hoops this morning, and and hopefully you picked up on the fact that life is not a cruise around the Mediterranean Sea in Acts 21, and, and hopefully you're not going to be like Colonel Baker, ignoring good godly advice from the stories that God has passed on for you to take into tomorrow. And hopefully you're going to embrace your calling this week, that you participate in this family despite the opposition Living every day according to the motto, let the will of the Lord be done. Our story is that God can't be stopped. He's not going to be stopped. It's a great story. And He knows what He's doing in your life. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I know it's been a little bit of a race today to get through this chapter, but I do pray that what has been said will, will remain deeply embedded in the hearts of your people who have heard your word preached this morning. We pray that you'll have prepared the soil and that ultimately this week you will water it and that it will bear fruit in their lives, that they will remember that they are part of a great family that they have to participate in despite what happens because you know what you're doing and you're worth following. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.